Texas versus the United States, a case about immigration enforcement, or in this instance, the lack thereof. Who wins this battle of federalism? We shall see. Professor David Rubenstein of the Washburn University School of Law joins us. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. It's great being here with you today. We've got another interesting show, but before we jump right in, we need to thank our sponsor, Noda. Noda is powered by MT Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of Noda, a no cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit trustnoda.com forward slash legal to learn more. That's Noda spelled N O T A. Terms and conditions may apply. All right, let's meet our guest. Professor David Rubenstein. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so nice to be here with you. Absolutely. No, thank you for coming on. You know, uh, in preparation for this show, you know, I came across, courtesy of our uh, producer, Molly McDutta, your piece in Lawfare, which I thought was really well written, handled, uh, kind of took on all these issues in this case that we're talking about today. And it was titled Immigration Enforcement Under the Biden Administration Testing. And so I'm going to put a link to that in our show notes, because I think it's a worthwhile piece if you want to understand this case to definitely uh, tune into. But we're talking about today, the state of Texas versus United States case. And of course, this is related to the that uh, freeze on deportations that the new Biden administration put forth through the Department of Homeland Security. And so state of Texas obviously objected to that, uh, claiming some harms. But before we kind of get into the weeds there, Professor, I want to turn to you, you know, kind of like we do in law school, as you teach in law school, we start with the facts of our case when we review a case. So let's let's begin there and, you know, tell us what happened and then, you know, kind of build out a little bit more about who these parties are. I know I kind of spilled the beans a little bit, but DHS oversees a couple of other agencies. So let's start with that. Yeah, sure. So on President Biden's first day in office on January 20th, the president began taking measures to rescind and to rethink the nation's immigration policies. So among a number of other initiatives, uh, the then acting DHS secretary issued a memorandum which called for a department-wide review of policies and practices concerning immigration enforcement and provided for some interim measures while that review was occurring. One of the interim measures specified in the memorandum is the 100-day pause, which is at the heart of the Texas v. United States litigation. Under that 100-day pause, it would essentially stop the removal of non-citizens that were already subject to final orders of removal. In the memorandum, DHS explained that it was doing this because it was facing some significant operational challenges at the southwest border in particular, and also mentioned the serious global public health crisis. Texas decided to sue to stop the 100-day pause from going into effect. So that occurred on January 22nd. We got a complaint from Texas, along with a motion to temporarily enjoin the 100-day pause from going into effect. And since then, the district court has first granted the temporary restraining order and has since more recently extended that to be a a preliminary injunction, which will stay in effect probably indefinitely unless and until the district court gets reversed by the Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit or the Supreme Court. And barring that, we'll get a trial at some later point, many months, if not 
perhaps more than a year down the road from now. Well, just a quick uh, question about that deportation freeze. Now, it applied to most of the removals that were scheduled to happen, but not every single one. There there were certain uh, kind of small number of carve-outs. So what were the type of, uh, and this is a legal term, and I realize it's not a term in favor, illegal aliens that were not considered to be covered by the freeze? First, I, I, yeah, I think it's useful to clarify or clear up some of the terms of art here. So first, to start with who is included, and it, it includes a certain set of non-citizens who are subject to final orders of removal, meaning that they, it was deemed by the administration that they have no legal right to remain in the country. And it, it's not only, and probably not even mostly, immigrants who have committed crimes. It, it could be immigrants that are you know, under final removals orders because they did not have a visa to begin with and were in the country, or because perhaps they had a visa and were here lawfully for some period of time, and then the visa expired. Uh, and then there are some number that were those were who were here legally, but then committed crimes. So it, it covers a number of different types and classes of non-citizens in the country under removal orders. And then, as you pointed out, Lawrence, there are some exceptions here. And I, I think probably the biggest one is that the 100-day pause would only apply to non-citizens who were president in the United States prior to November 2020. Therefore, you know, non-citizens that entered the removal pipeline after November 2020 are not covered by the pause at all. There are also some exceptions for non-citizens under removal orders who pose national security concerns or who committed certain serious crimes or those with close gang affiliations. Well, Professor, we've got a lot to cover here. And so what I want to do is start with just kind of a nutshell here into uh, what each side is claiming. And so from Texas's point of view, it claims to have suffered irreparable harm because of this immigration deportation freeze, right? And so there's uh, also this memo that was put out that put the freeze into place uh, as it was claimed as being arbitrary and capricious. But it also brought in this breach of agreement uh, between the Department of Homeland Security and the state of Texas, which I've never heard about. So I definitely want to get into that. And I just want to get the quick flyby of some of these issues that Texas is claiming. And then after that, I want to flip the tables a little bit and then talk about what the defense is claiming the United States government here. So why don't we start with Texas, if you don't mind, Professor? Sure. A couple of weeks before the Trump administration left office, the White House entered into agreements with certain states, including Texas, which ostensibly sought to prevent the Biden administration or any future administration from changing immigration enforcement policies. And Texas is claiming that the 100-day pause is a violation of that agreement. In addition to that, Texas is claiming that the 100-day pause is a violation of the Constitution, that it violates the immigration laws, and that it also violates the Administration and Procedure Act. Okay, let's flip the table back over to the United States as a defense. So, you know, we've got a new Biden administration in and, uh, you know, they want to do immigration policies differently than the uh, than their predecessor, the Trump administration. And so now they're going to have to defend this position because they can't get these orders put into place. So what is their defense here? How do they push back? The pushback really involves whether and to what extent the president or executive agencies can use the power of prosecutorial discretion in the way that it was used here. That issue really permeates all of the issues in the case. So from the government's perspective, 
it is entitled to based on historical practice, as well as what's the discretion that's provided to the executive in the immigration statute to exercise prosecutorial discretion to not remove aliens, even if they are subject to removal orders. And the government's also arguing that it had good reasons for issuing the 100-day pause. And finally, the government is arguing that the agreement entered into between the Trump administration and states like Texas is unprecedented and unlawful. Now, I want to build that uh, last part out there because this is something I've never seen before. So according to my research uh, in the, the waning days of the Trump administration, there, there were uh, similar arguments, not just with the Department of Homeland Security, not just related to immigration, but the Trump administration through these agencies uh, struck out agreements with states. And so in exchange for Texas helping the Department of Homeland Security in its operations with immigration law and policy, providing it information and supporting it in its role, uh, the Department of Homeland Security was supposed to do certain things. It was supposed to provide a certain notice and comment opportunity before any new regulations were to come up. So build that out a little bit, uh, Professor. I'd never heard of anything like this. I mean, I, I, it's just, it was kind of shocking to me to hear about that because it just seems like kind of a monkey wrench thrown in the spokes here. Yeah. The reason we, you probably haven't heard about it, and I hadn't either, because as far as I know, this is completely unprecedented. And one of the reasons it's unprecedented is that it seems very clear under the law that these types of agreements are void. They're not enforceable because the federal government in this agreement is, would be effectively waiving its own sovereign immunity, right? It would be effectively allowing states to enforce a contract about how the federal government executes the law. And that gives rise to all kinds of problems from a federalism perspective because it would essentially turn over uh, the reins of power to states and outgoing administrations to decide how the law will be enforced going forward. And if a contract like this is in fact enforceable, it would really be a huge disruption even really to the core of our representative democracy because people will have elected officials uh, like the president who, who specifically would not be able to take action that the president or the president-elect claims wants to take with regard to immigration in this context. And so I don't see these agreements having uh, any legal uh, bases going forward. And I think for good reason that they should not be recognized as valid agreements at the end of the day, this was an injunction. And I think one of the things that I was a little surprised by was how complicated it was to get to that decision. And so I want to break off a couple of elements here as to the court's ration and reason for uh, giving this temporary restraining order. And, uh, you know, they had to have standing. And so this was actually, and, and just for, for the benefit of our audience that are not lawyers out there, if you don't have standing, the court can't give you a remedy. You have to have some type of injury that the court's in a position to recognize for you. So unless you show that, you really can't be before the court. Now, this was challenging. So Texas was able to show that they had financial injury. But in this case, you know, just having a simple financial injury isn't necessarily enough. So walk us through how they qualified for standing in this case. Right. Texas, Texas was trying to demonstrate and eventually ultimately succeeded in convincing the district court that it would suffer financial injury in a few different ways, essentially because immigrants who would otherwise be removed would remain in the state or that immigrants perhaps in other states who are not removed might travel into the state of Texas and upon being in Texas might require the expenditure of 
Texas's money, you know, taxpayer money for things like detention and education of undocumented children in their schools and so on and so forth. So Texas is essentially claiming that it's suffering a fiscal harm because you'll have immigrants in the state who otherwise would be removed that remain in the state uh, at a financial cost to the state of Texas. That's essentially the basis for their standing. And building upon that, you know, the relief that they got, you know, it's called equity relief. So if you get this restraining order, basically said to the Biden administration, although you are now the executive and you're giving your orders to the Department of Homeland Security and you want to do a 100-day freeze on these uh, removals and deportations, you can't because of this remedy. It's a pretty extreme remedy. Courts don't like to give equity unless they find uh, adequate reasoning for it. So walk us through that because this was another tightrope that the state of Texas somehow successfully managed to uh, navigate? Yeah, that's a good, great question. First of all, the state of Texas has to demonstrate a likelihood of success on the merits of their claims. And and for reasons that I mentioned earlier, and we'll have time, I hope to talk a little bit more about whether or not Texas even has meritorious claims is highly debatable. But on top of that, Texas has to demonstrate that if an injunction is not awarded, that it would suffer irreparable harm, like the type of harm that could not be remedied sometime down the road. And also, Texas is claiming that to issue the injunction is in the public interest. And here, Texas is essentially arguing that it's always in the public interest to make sure that the laws are being executed in the way that they're supposed to be. So in many ways, you know, the decision by the, by the district court to provide this extraordinary relief turns on the strength of the merits of the case itself which, again, I think are highly debatable at this point. You know, we covered uh, the the aspect of non-enforcement on an earlier show uh, about uh, the district attorney, uh, George Gascon, from uh, Los Angeles. And so, you know, one of the issues at case there was his decision to not enforce certain laws on the books in an effort to to, to try to help people out that uh, maybe, maybe were, uh, at least in his viewpoint, uh, being unfairly targeted by law enforcement. And so in this case, you know, non-enforcement was we're going to put a temporary freeze on deportations, removals for illegal aliens within the country. And so normally that doesn't arise to a legal conflict, right? So in this case, though, again, the state of Texas manages to find a way through there under certain circumstances, under law enforcement, under agency law, you are allowed to bring cases related to non-enforcement. So walk us through that one more time tightrope walk that Texas did. I think if I can, it's useful to start with where the parties agree, This is where they agree. They agree that in immigration, that the federal government has broad prosecutorial discretion. The parties agree that that broad prosecutorial discretion includes the discretion to not remove aliens who are under final removal orders. They also agree that prosecutorial discretion can be used in individual case-by-case In other words, there's a particular immigrant and due to humanitarian concerns or or otherwise, they agree that the federal government can exercise prosecutorial discretion not to remove those aliens and that that type of prosecutorial discretion would not even be judicially removable. Okay, so they agree on all that. The rubber really hits the road here and the issues in the case really turn on at what point do those sort of paradigmatic uses of prosecutorial discretion in case-by-case determinations 
veer into something else, to new territory, like where the executive is effectively changing the law or making law, because rather than on case-by-case basis, the executive is deciding to not enforce the law against a category of individuals or a class of individuals as opposed to on an individualized basis, right? So this is in some ways similar to issues about like DACA, and DAPA and other types of prosecutorial decisions on how to allocate resources, not just based on a case-by-case determination, but you know, over a certain category or class of cases. And the argument that Texas is raising is that this 100-day pause essentially is not like your typical prosecutorial discretion. It's more like federal lawmaking, or I think Texas would say it's more like federal unlawmaking in the sense that the federal government is trying to undo Congress's laws on the books with regard to immigration enforcement. And and so it really becomes either a question of degree or a question in kind. And I think significantly, the Supreme Court has had a couple of opportunities recently to address that question in the context of DACA and DAPA. And in both instances, the court Well, in the case of DAPA, the court split 4-4 and didn't provide an opinion that was shortly after Justice Scalia's death. And in the case of DACA, uh, in the context of the Trump administration trying to roll back and rescind DACA, the Supreme Court had another opportunity to answer that question and punted on it. And so it still remains an open question about what the meets and bounds are are for prosecutorial discretion, as well as the related question about what is the judicial role in checking the exercises of prosecutorial discretion. And so in some ways, the 100-day pause is the continuation of a much longer and much more difficult discussion about those issues. That's where I'm going with this next question. We've got just about a minute left here. And, uh, you know, in your piece that we're going to cite in our show notes, you know, you talked about uh, some of the long lasting impact this case, when it becomes resolved, however it becomes resolved, is going to have some impact on executive power, the ability to give executive orders. It's going to have some impact on judicial power. How far can the judiciary go when it enforces against an agency or another branch of the government like the executive branch? But federalism, you know, the interrelation of local and state governments uh, versus the federal and when each one applies and when each one trumps the other, but also administrative law. Are agencies as free to uh, issue their uh, regulations as they were in the past? So let's close on that, minute or less, just on the the possible long-lasting impact of this case. Well, with regard to executive power, I've already sort of gestured to that. It really involves what are the the meets and bounds, what are the limits on the use of prosecutorial discretion, specifically with the use of prosecutorial discretion to not enforce certain parts of Congress's laws in the books, whether in general or with regard to something like a 100-day pause, which has a temporal limitation on it. With regard to judicial power, in some ways, it's the flip side of the same coin. It's, you know, to what extent will courts or should courts review and scrutinize and second guess the executive branch's determinations about how and whether and where to exercise prosecutorial discretion. There's also another major question here with regard to judicial power. It's somewhat tied to the question of standing, right? Because the easier it is to show standing, then it easier is to get into federal court. Um, But also in this case, the district court issued a a so-called nationwide injunction 
which means that the district court is deciding that the 100-day pause cannot go into effect not only in Texas, where the district court was sitting, but it cannot go into effect across the entire nation. And that itself is a significant question that the Supreme Court has tinkered with, but has not fully resolved. And this could be a case where that issue comes to a head if it gets that far. With regard to federalism, if the district court standing holds, and if it's this easy for states to demonstrate the type of harm that allows a state to get into federal court based on uh, effects to the state's financial interests, it's hard to conceive of any situation where federal immigration policy can be adjusted where it would not have an effect on a state's finances. Because even if, for example, like in the Trump administration, if the policy were to crack down on immigrants and immigration, you could have the opposite argument. And in fact, we did see these arguments during the Trump administration, which is that states would complain that, you know, these immigrants are that are now getting deported uh, should be allowed to stay for whatever reason, and that the injury in that case would be that these immigrants that would be deported are somehow not then able to contribute to the economy of the state. So, so in other words, it's hard to see how even think of a situation where states would not have the opportunity to just come in and challenge any type of executive act of prosecutorial discretion under these circumstances. And then finally, with regard to administrative law, there's all kinds of procedural issues that we didn't have a chance to get into. But really, a lot of them have to do with whether and to what extent acts like the one at issue here involving prosecutorial discretion have to go through the procedures of notice and comment rulemaking before they can be issued, and also separate issues about the amount of explanation that the agency has to provide to satisfy a court that there were sufficient reasons for the type of agency actions at issue. And all of those are really unresolved questions of law and have been for a number of years. This case might bring them to a head, uh, and I guess we'll just have to see and find out. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, I did too. Thank you so much. And thank you listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please recommend us to a friend. They might even thank you for it. And once again, thank you to our sponsor, the fine folks at Noda. You can find them at trustnoda.com forward slash legal. That's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. And last but never least, thank you to our team, producer Molly McDonough and our LTN audio crew for all their hard work. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. 